You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So growing up in North Carolina, my family every year would go to this small beach on the coast called Holden Beach. It's this uh, uh, beautiful little beach, uh, private, small. Um, I, I, I've not been there in a long time, but... Uh, it, it's it's still I think I'd say it's one of my favorite places in the whole world. It it uh, the history of it, the town around the beach was actually settled way back in the 1700s, and to this day, uh, it's it's not a very commercialized community. It's just this little um, little hidden, kind of tucked away, quiet beach in North Carolina. It's a a wonderful place. I hope to go back there at some point. But the thing I remember most about this beach when I was a kid was the bridge that takes you there. The, the, The intracoastal waterway runs between the beach and the mainland of North Carolina. And uh, and so to get from one side to the other, they built this bridge. But, but rather than it be a drawbridge that, you know, that opens like that, they decided to just make the bridge really high so that boats could get under it. So it has a, a 65-foot clearance, which doesn't maybe sound very high to you. What does that mean? But you have to imagine it's a very short bridge. So 65 feet on a short bridge, it kind of does like this. It kind of goes like that, all right? And when you're a kid and you are in your car and you're on the, you, you can't see one side of the bridge from the other. And I remember, you, you can probably imagine when you're driving over this thing as a kid, it, it was terrifying to me. It just looks like you're just going <laughs> to just go over, right? It, it was a bridge. This is a bridge that gets you from one side to the other, but it's not. It's known to be uh, not an easy bridge, okay, which is exactly like Exodus 19. Because in the book of Exodus, there are, broadly speaking, basically two parts to the book. There are two sides to the book. There's the Exodus part. There's the the rescue from Egypt part. And then there is the law part. Those are the two sides. you got rescue and you have law. And Exodus 19 is the bridge that, that connects the two sides. And here's the thing. It's, it's kind of a scary bridge, okay? This is not an easy bridge. Exodus 19 is, is one of those crucial passages in the Bible because how we understand this passage is going to set a trajectory for us and how we understand the rest of the Old Testament. This, this chapter is going to set up for us how we understand the law of God and how we understand the calling of Israel altogether, okay? So Exodus 19, this is a high bridge, okay? So high, it goes like that. And this is where we are today for our sermon. And so I want to just make a disclaimer right away about, about the sermon. This is one of those sermons where the entire sermon could just be a Bible study because there are, there are so many key themes in this passage. There, there are just lots of wonder to see in the passage. And if, you, if you're new to the Bible, I just want to say this is an amazing book. This is an amazing book. The more you read it, the more you give yourself to understand this book, the more wonder you will find. And, and we could just stay in the wonder 
in Exodus 19. But what I want to do today is I want to I want to make this a practical wonder. Okay, I think this chapter. I think it teaches us, with all, with, with all of its depth, with all of its wonder, I think it teaches us three truths about God. Overall, this chapter, it shows us how God relates to humanity, okay, which is extremely relevant, right? So what I want to do for the sermon is I want us, I want us to see these three truths. I'm going to tell you right now what they are. Three truths about God, how God relates to humanity. Number one is that God, by his grace, draws us into fellowship with himself, Number two is that God intends to have for himself a people who do what Adam failed to do. And then number three, God will indeed have for himself that people. Those are the three truths. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Scriptures. In this moment, we ask that that by your spirit, we ask that you would open our hearts to receive from you in your word. Show us, in this moment, show us the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In his name, amen, amen. All right, so number one is over here. God, by his grace, draws us into fellowship with himself. Let's pick up there in verse one. Notice that Moses is still dating things in terms of the Exodus event, okay? The, the people of Israel are now at Sinai, and Moses says it was on the, the third new moon after they left Egypt. That fact seems arbitrary. Why is Moses telling us this? Just remember that. We're going to come back to it, okay? Look at verse two. Verse 2 says that the people were encamped before Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up the mountain where Yahweh speaks to him. uh, Yahweh tells Moses what Moses is supposed to tell the people of Israel, and we see that in verses 4 and 6, okay? This is Moses speaking to the people on behalf of Yahweh. Look at verse 4. This is what we read in verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, this is really important because this is the first thing Yahweh says to Israel. Whatever else he's going to say, this is the first thing. And this first thing that he says is meant to remind Israel about the Exodus. He tells them, hey, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And of course, they've seen that. We have seen Israel see that. That's what chapters 4 to 17 are all about. God has rescued Israel through amazing signs and wonders. God brought the people of Israel out out of the land of Egypt. That's how God says it in Exodus 20, verse 2. Okay? But here in chapter 19, verse 4, notice the language. It's different. The language here, he says, hey, remember what I did to Egypt? And he says, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He doesn't mention deliverance here. Now, he's describing that event. He's describing the event of the Exodus, but this time he gives this eagle metaphor and he talks about the destination. 
He says first, he says, I bore you on eagle's wings. Or he's, he's saying, I carried you, I carried you on eagle's wings. And this is an image that we see a few more times in the Bible, this image of eagles. And we can sort of imagine what this is like. I use your ima- imagination here. Imagine an eagle flying. I saw an eagle the other day. Fly. Imagine an eagle flying. Now imagine the eagle is holding you in a good way. <laughs> like, you know, and it's a good thing. Okay, the eagle. The eagle is holding you, carrying you, and bringing you away from trouble. The eagle is bringing you away from the fray of difficulty and oppression and slavery. That is is Yahweh's relationship to Israel. That is what Yahweh did in the Exodus. And that's the first thing that Yahweh reminds Israel about here in verse 19, which I think is supposed to get our attention. The, the, the metaphor here is meant to stop you. This is meant to be something hard to assume. Yahweh's like an eagle who carries you. He's an eagle who carries me. It's meant to slow us down. And if you think about that for a minute, the message here is grace. Why does Yahweh carry Israel on the wings of an eagle? Because he loves Israel. Well, why does he love Israel? Because he does. And Moses is going to give a lot of attention to this, this, this topic in Deuteronomy 7 to 9. It all comes back to grace. That's the message. It all comes back to grace. It's the same reason God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. It's the same reason God told Adam there was still hope back in Genesis 3. This is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. This is the absolute undeserved love of God. It's not because anybody earned it. It's not because anybody was good enough. God did what he did to Egypt for Israel because of his grace. And that's the thing that God is saying to Israel first thing here in Exodus 19. Hey, remember Egypt. Remember, I'm your eagle. I'm your eagle. All of this, all of this is by grace. And then he says, secondly, I brought you to myself. That's the destination. So rather than say here, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, which he says other places in 20 verse 2, rather than say that here, this is what he says, rather than say I brought you out of the land of Egypt, he says, I brought you to myself. Now this is important because it connects some dots for us. It connects the dots to something that we heard earlier in this story the last time we were at Mount Sinai. Now we've been, you remember, we've been to Mount Sinai before. Way back in chapter three, Mount Sinai is the place where God spoke with Moses through the burning bush. Now in chapter three, it's called Mount Horeb. But it's the same place. Horeb, Sinai, it's the same place. This is the same place, the same mountain. And Yahweh told Moses back in chapter 3, he said in chapter 3, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And now in Exodus 19, Moses and the people 
are there. They are out of Egypt and they are at that mountain and the purpose is worship. Yahweh wants Israel to be his people. He he wants them to be a people who live in his presence. He wants them to be a people who have fellowship with him. And this clarifies for us something super important about God's salvation. Okay? It's that God never only rescues us from something, but he always rescues us to something, and that something is himself. God's salvation is a salvation by grace, by him, and to him, okay? God's salvation is a salvation by grace. It's always by him and to him, and if you don't want that, you don't want his salvation, Okay, real talk here. If you don't want God, you don't want God's salvation. And this is one of those critical questions that we have to ask ourselves at at a very practical level in life. We have to ask ourselves this question. Here it is. Do we, when when it comes to how we live, do we only want God to forgive us or... Do we want the life with God that forgiveness gives? Get the question? Do you want Jesus to only let you off the hook for your sin? Or do you want Jesus? Because the good news of God's gospel is that he he brings us to himself. That's the good news of the gospel. God, by his grace, he draws us into fellowship. Okay, that's the first thing we learn here. Here's the second thing right here. God intends to have for himself a people who do what Adam failed to do. This is in verses five and six. And this is really the heart of the passage, okay? Which means we, ha- we have to read the rest of the passage in light of what God says here. And God says two things here. First, he gives us the calling of Israel, and then he gives us the condition, okay? There is who God calls Israel to be, and then there's the condition by which Israel becomes that, okay? Look, 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 verse five and six again, look at them. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, look at this calling here. Israel shall be, a, shall be Yahweh's treasured possession among all peoples. That's the main calling, I think, in the two verses. Verse 6 just explains more of what that means, okay? And when we read these words, treasured possession, think about treasured possession, we kind of have an idea for what that means, right? This is something, like, very valuable. If, if Israel is Yahweh's treasured possession, it must mean that Yahweh really loves Israel. Like, he loves Israel more than any other people, which is, which is what he says here. 
The whole earth is the Lord's. Everything in the earth is the Lord. God made it all. And out of everything that he's made, out of everything, all the peoples that he's made, he especially prizes Israel. We understand that. We, we get that's what this, this, this phrase, treasured possession, we understand that. Okay. Now, there's another level here, another layer to this treasured possession phrase that I want us to see. The word for treasured possession is, is not used a ton in the Old Testament. And most of the times when it's used, it's referring to Israel, okay? But what's fascinating about this word is that when you track down how this word was used in other writings from this time period, um, it carries the idea of sonship. Treasure possession was a way to talk about someone's choice servant or son, which is exactly how the word is used in Malachi 3.17. It's always good to have a place in scripture where we, we see this use. Okay, this is in Malachi 3.17. So Yahweh here is talking about Israel. This is what he says, Malachi 3.17. He says, they shall be mine. You can hear the echo to to Exodus 19. He says, Malachi 3.17, they shall be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. In Malachi 3.17, treasured possession is parallel to one son who serves him. So Israel being Yahweh's treasured possession carries the idea of Israel being Yahweh's son. Treasured possession is a way to talk about your beloved son, your son who you love, who you prize. That's what's happening here. And we already know this from Exodus. We've already seen that Israel is considered to be Yahweh's son. Back in Exodus 4, remember Yahweh says there in verse 22, Israel is my firstborn son. And then Yahweh says in Exodus 4, 23, let my son go that he may serve me. And then later in, in the scriptures in Hosea 11.1, 1, God there is talking about the Exodus and God says, out of Egypt, I called my son. So we already understand from other places in the Bible that Yahweh thinks of Israel as his son. But this is really important for Exodus 19.5 because here we see that this is actually Israel's main calling. More than anything else, Israel is called to be like Yahweh's son, his treasured possession, which is explained in verse 6. What does that mean? It means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, so this is fascinating, all right? Look at the combination in that phrase, kingdom of priest. On one hand, you have a kingdom as in dominion and rule. On the other hand, you have priesthood, as in those who have a special relation to God, those who are consecrated by God to serve God and man. Israel is to be a people whose dominion and rule is expressed through their priesthood. They rule in relation uh, to God as a service to God. Collectively here, we see Israel is meant to be a king-priest nation, a kingdom of priests. They're meant to be a king-priest nation. Now remember, back in Genesis, 
that God's calling on Abraham was the same. God commissioned uh, Adam. I said Abraham. This is Adam in Genesis 3. God commissioned Adam to have dominion. This is Genesis 1.26. God commissioned Adam to have dominion over all creation. That's kingship language, right? Dominion. And then we see when God explained to Adam what that dominion looks like, he told Adam to work and keep, to cultivate and keep the garden, which are the exact same words used to describe the duties of priests in the Old Testament. So all all the commentators agree, all the scholars agree that God intended Adam to be a king priest. So Adam, as God's first man, considered to be like God's son, as it were. God called Adam to image and represent him as a king priest. And now, God's calling on Israel is exactly the same. Israel is also considered God's son, and God calls them to serve him as a kingdom of priests. What we need to know in Exodus 19 is that God's calling on Israel is like God's calling on Adam. God intends to have for himself a people who do what Adam failed to do. Now, we know Adam failed. Adam did not live up to his calling. How do you think Israel is going to do? Okay. We have to keep reading here. Keep looking. This is where the condition helps us in verse 5. The calling to be like Adam. Do what Adam did. A son, a king priest. In order for Israel to be what God calls them to be, they have to meet a condition, though. And here's that condition. They have to obey God's voice and keep his covenant. Okay, time out. Time out. Remember, this is a high bridge, okay? This is a high bridge. We're on a bridge here. goes like this is a high bridge, all right? So just hang in there, all right? Look at verse 5. This is the, que- the, the question here is in verse 5. When he mentions covenant, what covenant is he talking about? What covenant must Israel keep? Now, the last time the word covenant was used was in reference to Abraham in Exodus 2.24. In fact, up to this point in the Bible, when it comes to God in this word covenant, apart from Noah, covenant always refers to God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. The next time we see the word covenant is in Exodus 24, 8, and that's when Moses reads the book of the covenant. And in that case, covenant is referring to all the laws that we read about in chapter 20 to chapter 23. So the question is here in chapter 19, when God says covenant, is he talking about his covenant with Abraham or is he talking about a future covenant of laws that he mentions in chapter 24? See, covenant. Does he mean covenant with Abraham or future covenant of laws that he mentions in chapter 24? I believe he's talking about Abraham. And this matters because the nature of God's covenant with Abraham was one of faith. How does Abraham keep the covenant God made with him? By believing God. Remember, 
Genesis 15, 7, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now, now how is Abraham's faith expressed? By obedience. Abraham obeyed the voice of God in Genesis 22. And those words used about Abraham in Genesis 22, 18. 22, Genesis 22, 18, it said of Abraham when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, it said, God says to Abraham, I see now that you have obeyed my voice. Those words, obey God's voice, are the exact same words required of Israel here in Exodus 19:5. The way Israel keeps this covenant is by believing God the way Abraham believed God. The condition for Israel to be what God has called them to be is faith. It is just simple faith. For Israel to be God's son, for Israel to be a kingdom of priests, they just have to trust God. Trust him. Israel can only fulfill their calling by faith. But here's the thing. Faith is precisely what they lack. Okay? Time out again. It's a high bridge, and this is the part on the bridge when you can't see the other side. Okay? So we're all holding on, okay? We're going to just hang in there. We're right up here, okay? Look at verse 11. You guys get the metaphor of the bridge. Is that working or not working? Okay. Verse, look at verse 11. We're, we're getting close to the top. Okay. Verse 11. In verse 11, Yahweh says that on the third day, he is going to come down on the mountain. Okay. His presence is going to be on the mountain and the people have to be careful. Verse 12 says that the people should not, shall not go up into the mountain or even touch the edge of it. That's in verse 12. Now, in verse 13, God says that when the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they shall come up to the mountain. So notice in verse 12, it said, God says, they shall not go up into the mountain. In verse 13, it's that they shall not come up to the mountain. Verse 12 is into, says into. Verse 13 says to. And well, here's the thing. Those are the exact same words in Hebrew. This is the same words. The reason it gets translated differently in English is because we're not sure how to make sense of this. How does God say not to do something and then he says to do it? That's Because that's the, the problem here. Well, it's kind of like when God told Abraham to do something, and then he said, no, no, don't do it. Remember? That also happened on a mountain. Okay? The, the point here is whether or not Israel can obey God's voice. This is about obedience. Can they listen to him? Israel must not, Israel, do not go up the mountain. But when you hear the trumpet, then you go up the mountain. That's what God says in verse 12 and verse 13. 
This is about whether they can listen to God. Can Israel, can the people of Israel obey God's voice? That's the question, okay? That's the question. Can the people of Israel obey God's voice? Hint, the manna story from a few chapters before, that's meant to plant an answer in our heads to this question. Can they obey God's voice? What do you think? Look, look what happens in verse 16. Oh man, this is, this is what I mean. You just, this thing, just the, the wonders here. Look at verse 16. Now, <laughs> verse 16 says it's the morning of the third day. That's when God is coming down the mountain. And, and Moses, we're, we're told the timing here, the timing of this, because it, it, it must matter. Now back to verse one. In verse one, we read that when Israel gets to Sinai, it's the third new moon after they left Egypt. And scholars say that would have been the 48th day after Passover. And so the third day here in verse 16 makes this the 50th day after Passover. And the 50th day after Passover is also called Pentecost. Okay, this is happening on Pentecost, all right? Look at this. Verse 16 says, on this day of Pentecost, verse 16 says, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Now, what are the people supposed to do when they hear the trumpet? Go up the mountain. Exactly. When they hear the trumpet, they're supposed to go up the mountain. But look at verse 16. The trumpet blasts, verse 16, and all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses is trying to help here. He, he gets the people out of the camp and he brings them to the foot of the mountain. And this, this mountain is terrifying. I mean, this is a mountain of fire, like the burning bush in Exodus 3, and like the pillar of fire that's been leading the people. Yahweh has led Israel from fire by fire to fire. Because the fire is a symbol of his presence. Look at verse 19. And as the sound of the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet, as it grew louder and louder, again, what are the people supposed to do when they hear the trumpet? They're supposed to go up the mountain because that's what God said to do. But, but they don't listen. So, so Moses speaks. And God answers Moses, and then God calls Moses to the top of the mountain, and the people stand back. And the people now, the people are now prohibited from the mountain. And rather than be a people who is a kingdom of priests, God establishes a priesthood among the people. And over in chapter 20, verse 18, after the Ten Commandments, we, we get a little more commentary on what happened here. This is what Moses says in chapter 20, verse 18, about this event. He says, chapter 20, verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off. So rather than obey God's voice and go up the mountain, the people were afraid of God and they stood off far from the mountain and they said, Moses, you go instead. 
We do not want to hear the voice of God again. The people did not go up the mountain themselves because they did not have faith. And because they did not have faith, because they didn't have faith, they could not be who God called them to be. They needed Moses to mediate. See, God intends to have for himself a people to do what Adam failed to do. He intends, God intends to have for himself a people who do what Adam failed to do, but Israel is not that people. At least not yet. Not in Exodus 19. But now here's our third point. He's going to have that people. He intends, God intends to have for himself a people who will, who will do what Adam failed to do. Israel doesn't do it here, but God will have that people. And at this point, if you're still tracking with the bridge thing, <laughs> we're like rolling now, okay? We came over the hard part of the bridge and now we're, now we can, now we're doing this, okay? S smoothing out here. Adam failed to be who God called him to be. Israel, as a people, failed to be who God called them to be. But the purpose is still there. God's going to have this people. God will have, God will have for himself a treasured possession. God will have a kingdom of priests. And do you know how God will do this? Christmas. It's Christmas. It starts, it starts at Christmas. God will have a people for his own possession by first sending a person of his own possession. And that person is Jesus. And Jesus, when he came, he walked in the journey of Israel. He was spoken of by the prophets of Israel. He was called out of Egypt like Israel, passing through the sea like Israel, tempted in the wilderness like Israel, except that in every step of his journey, with every heartbeat and with every breath, Jesus believed God. Jesus endured in faith. The spirit of Yahweh rested upon him. The law of God was written upon his heart. Jesus obeyed. Jesus obeyed the voice of God. Jesus was like Israel. But Jesus is the true Israel. And, and Jesus is his father's real treasure. He is the beloved son who came to this earth like Adam. But he came as a baby in a manger. And he grew up. And as he grew, he imaged and represented God in the ultimate sense. So much so that to have, to have seen Jesus is to have seen God. And like Adam, Jesus is also a king, but he's a king who has a kingdom not of this world. He is a king who bends to wash the feet of his subjects, and he doesn't stop there. He is a king who dies for his people. 
Jesus is a king who takes upon himself the sins of his people. He is a substitute for them. Jesus is a king who is also a priest. As a king, he wages war against sin and death and defeats them both. And in his victory, when he takes his seat on his throne, he is seated there as a priest who prays for you. Jesus is the king priest who reigns in mercy He is the king priest who has the power to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jesus is like Adam, but Jesus is the better Adam. (laughs) He's the better Adam, the truer Israel, the better Adam. And as the better Adam, Jesus created in himself a new humanity who is under a new covenant. And in this new covenant, like with Jesus, God puts his spirit within his people and God writes his law on their hearts, which he did in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. This is how it all comes together. What God intended first for a person named Adam, and then for a people named Israel. What he intended first for a person, Adam, and then a people, Israel, he has now realized in the person, Jesus, and in a people called the church. Listen to what Peter says about the church in 1 Peter 2.9. The apostle Peter is talking about the church. This is what he says about the church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's us. Like, that's us. Peter's talking about us. The church is the people of Jesus. We are men and women brought into fellowship with God by faith. We are created new in Jesus. We are forgiven by the cross of Jesus and filled with the spirit of Jesus to walk in the ways of Jesus. And that is what Exodus 19 is ultimately about. All the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of Yahweh? Or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? It's all grace. It's all grace. And so from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. I don't know what we do with that other than to worship, right? What do you do with that other than to just adore him? Lord Jesus, 
Lord Jesus, have your glory. Right now, just take it. Just have it. Have your glory, Jesus. You who are more real than anything. You, the true Israel. You, the better Adam. Jesus, we adore you. We just, we just have to put our hands over our mouths. We adore you. We adore you and we give you thanks, Jesus. We give you thanks in this moment, in your name. Amen. And so now we come to this table and we come to this table to give him thanks. And so if you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, if you adore Jesus Christ, you are invited to eat and drink with us at this table. We're going to serve the bread first. Just take it and hold it. And then I'll come back up and we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.